Fresh manna fell to the ground as a gift from God while the Israelites were in the wilderness. This is what they ate for 40 years. It was fresh from the ovens of heaven, baked by the master baker himself. How the Israelites must have anticipated the taste and the smell of each morning's delivery. Just like the Israelites, you too can now experience the taste and the smell of fresh manna. Today, you'll be listening to David Austin, pastor of the Manistique, Macmillan Northwoods, and Sault Ste. Marie Seventh-day Adventist Churches. And now, here's Pastor David. I want to begin this portion of our service with another prayer, so if you would bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love, for your word, for the Sabbath. Lord, may your word speak to us today about the blessings that you have prepared. Lord, may we recognize your presence here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, keeping the Sabbath holy. So this is a very short series. We're going to talk a little bit about what it means to keep the Sabbath holy. And we'll start in an obvious place, and that is today, God's house. You know, what does that have anything to do with keeping the Sabbath holy? Why is that important? But we'll move beyond that because Sabbath is an experience that should be happening all week long and celebrated on the seventh day. It should be an experience that we are entering into on a daily basis. So how is it that we keep the Sabbath holy? We talked a little bit in the children's story about things we ought to do or ought not to do. And when people talk about worshiping in God's house, well, there's a lot of different places tent, a castle, a monastery, a church, a shack, a mosque, a temple, etc. There's a lot of different places that I have seen called the church. And I've seen them treated in so many different ways. I've seen a rock concert. I've seen kids running and jumping. I've seen a toddler in the middle, down below a pulpit, rolling around, playing with cars. I've seen people praying throughout the entire service. I've seen a fist fight break out in a church service, an argument, praising, yelling, debate, eating, singing, and silence. Now, some of those are inappropriate at any time. Some of those have appropriate times. Some of those should happen in a church, and some of those shouldn't happen in a church. Some of the things that we do today are a little unique because we have changed things a little bit through time. It used to be back in the time of Jesus that the temple was the temple, and that was pretty much it. But as the temple got expanded, then it became living quarters and storage quarters and all kinds of other things as well. And so there was this hub of activity that surrounded the holy place and the most holy place. And, and so there wasn't as much silence as there was before because of the chaos. And then, and then, of course, it escalated. And then there was buying and selling and all kinds of other things in the courtyard. And Jesus had to reprimand them for it. Go back to early America. It was not uncommon for the sanctuaries to be used as pretty much anything. The church was also the school during the week. It was also the courthouse when needed. It was the wedding reception area when they needed that too. It was usually in the center of town, and it was the center of all those activities. And then, of course, obviously, church at the end of the week. 
Today, we generally try to separate things. We generally have a separation between the sanctuary proper and the rest of the church. We generally try to have a separation, but it hasn't always been that way. I want to submit to you that physical barriers don't mean an awful lot. It's how we respect the house of God. So the question is, what or where is God's house? That's the first question. Go with me to Isaiah 66, verse 1. Isaiah 66 and verse 1. Isaiah 66, verse 1, what or where is God's house? This one brings in a bit of a dichotomy. It says, thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me and where is the place of my rest? This is really important. Generally, we think of God residing where? In heaven, right? We think of that being God's residence. But really, can he be contained? That's part of where this question is. If heaven is his home and earth is his footstool, is there, I mean, that's a pretty big God, right? If his feet are on the earth and his head is in heaven and he stretches out his arms and it encompasses everything he's ever created, he's a very big God. So is there really any one thing that can confine him, right? And yet then he asks, And where is the house that you will build for me? Can we build him a house that would fit him? If we're taking the context of this verse at the very beginning, very literally, there is no structure that we could build that would fit God. And yet, he's expecting it. He wants a place to rest. He wants a place that we have built, set aside for him. It's not that he couldn't create one all on his own, but it says something when we prepare it for him. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. We'll start in verse 24. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, but the emphasis will be on 25. Hebrews chapter 10, we'll start in verse 24, says, And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another so much the more as you see the day approaching. Interestingly enough, the whole idea of us assembling together, coming together, you see throughout scripture that we would come together, praise and worship and glorify God. And and there's no set pattern on this. We like to get in our little um, patterns. We like to sit in a particular place. We like to sing particular songs. And heaven help the person that sits in our seat, right? I've told it as a jest at times past, but I'm not in a favor of when a church needs to be built, allowing church members to donate money so that their name can be on a plaque on a pew. Because I've literally seen someone with their name on the pew because they donated some money, claim that pew. And when guests come in, they make the guests move so that they can sit in their pew. But whether or not you're avid about your seat or not, we're creatures of habit. Most of you sit in the same, including me, (laughs) 
Most of us sit in the same place all the time. And if someone changes something, what, what, hey, what are they doing? Hey, that's not what we do. Coming together to fellowship together, to praise together. And it doesn't have to be some set guideline. We ought to shake things up once in a while. Let that be a warning. We ought to shake things up once in a while so that our relationship with Jesus doesn't get rusted in place, right? This is that idea of provoking one another in a good way. Generally speaking, when we think of a brother and a sister and one provokes the other one to wrath, right? But this here is a good context, provoking one another to love and good works, not to frustration and rage, but to love and good works. We ought to shake things up a little bit and we do that by coming together. The more we come together, the more we are an encouragement and a strength to one another to drive us to love and good works. And so this is, notice now, it, it doesn't say what type of a structure we should come to. It doesn't even say we should come to a structure. It just says that as the day approaches, we should not forsake the assembling. In fact, we ought to do it more often. I submit to you that God's house is not confined by walls. It's driven by the relationship that we have with him and the fellowship that we have with like-minded believers. Second Chronicles 7. Second Chronicles 7. Solomon is dedicating the temple. Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 15. Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 15. The glory of the Lord fills that tabernacle and God ends up speaking to Solomon. Here is his response for the beautiful edifice that they created for him. It says, 2 Chronicles 7, 15 and 16, Now mine eyes shall be opened and mine ears attend unto the prayer that is made in this place. For now have I chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever and mine eyes and mine heart shall be there perpetually. Now, there's a couple of things we can get out of this. God is not opposed to having a place that is called by his name, that he can dwell, and that people can find him there. In fact, actually, God intends that we would have a place where people know that they can come and that they will seek him there. It's okay to have a church building. It's okay to make it attractive. It doesn't need to be gaudy, but it needs to be magnetic not just for the content on the outside, but the content on the inside especially. It needs to be something that would draw people to him. God accepted and sanctified the building that had been dedicated to him. But remember, a sanctuary, a holy place, doesn't have to be within walls. Do you remember the story of Moses and the burning bush? What did God ask Moses to do? It's holy sand, holy ground. Should he have picked up that ground and worshipped it? What made the ground holy? The presence of God is what made it. Now, if God had picked a bush on the other side of the mountain, would that still have been holy? Yeah, because it's God's presence. It's not the dirt. It's not the bush. 
The bush was nothing special. The fire was. It wasn't earthly fire. Had it been earthly fire, it would have burned up the bush. But it was godly fire. His presence is that which makes it holy. So wherever we gather to worship, wherever we set aside that special time, wherever we invite his presence and he is there, that is where we worship. I'm not sure if you've thought about this, but one of the reasons why we have the introit, the invocational prayer, is to invite, that's what it means to invoke, to invite the Holy Spirit, to invite God into this place. We want it to be holy. We want it to be sacred. It's what we do when we start our worship services. We invite his presence here so that this place becomes holy. It's just wood. It's just other materials. Really, it can be purposed for something else if need be. But if God's presence is here, then it is his house. Our scripture reading was found in Isaiah 56. Turn with me there. Isaiah 56. If you're connecting dots already, that means the experience of our morning worship time with the Lord. That can be holy ground. Our worship time there can also be a Sabbath experience. That rest, we can enter into that rest every day. Isaiah 56. There is a trend in this world. Some people like to imagine that the church has power, that the building has potential all of of itself, as if the building can sanctify those who walk through the doors. Just have someone try to resign their membership. I'd had that experience. And suddenly people object to letting them go because then they'll be lost forever. As if them walking out the door has affected the condition of their heart. Them choosing to leave is a revelation of the choices they're making, not a determination of hell or hellfire. It's a matter of the condition of their heart. We don't have power over that and neither can we keep them. As if they're in a prison. We have confused ideas about church membership and church attendance. Can't tell you the number of times I've been with someone on their deathbed, and I'm asking about whether or not they've given everything to God. More than once, what I get is, well, you know, I've been an elder for many years and given a faithful tithe to the Lord, and I attend a church twice a week, and Notice what they're doing. They're hoping that they've got enough works on the list that God's going to say that they were good. But they didn't answer the question whether or not they've given everything to the Lord. They're still working on a works-based relationship somewhere along the line. They still don't. The church can't sanctify them. God can't. The church can't. Isaiah 56, starting in verse 1, Thus saith the Lord, Keep ye judgment and do justice, for my salvation is near to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. So stop for just a moment. What we should expect from the following verses is that God's understanding of justice and righteousness is going to be made very clear in these next couple of verses. 
okay? So what does a righteousness look like? What does salvation look like? What does judgment look like? Verse two, blessed is the man that doeth this and the son of man that layeth hold on it, okay? We now know that we have, you know, the blessing is going to come for those who do the following. That keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and keepeth his hand from doing any evil. Notice they're, they're connected together. The Sabbath and the fact that the doing evil can be related to how it is that we're keeping the Sabbath. There's a relationship between them because it's all really about a relationship. It is likely, without going any deeper at this point in time, that you could say how we keep the Sabbath is related to how we live our lives regularly. If we are living with Jesus regularly, we are probably keeping the Sabbath because of the nature of our relationship in our heart. But it's also the opposite. If we are living a lawless life, then it is also possible that we don't even know how to keep the Sabbath. Cause and effect show that they would be linked together. And he says, there's a blessing for those who don't pollute the Sabbath and keep their hand from any evil. Neither let the son of the stranger that hath joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord hath utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. Notice these individuals might have felt excluded in Israel. A eunuch has no posterity, no way for a family line to go through, therefore has no property, has no lineage that would ever come from him. And the son of a stranger has no rights within the promised land, not as God intended, but as was witnessed by the councils of the Jews. God actually intended that they would. That's how Salmon became such a big name. You probably don't know him. Salmon married Rahab. Follow that chain down. Obed and Jesse, David, Solomon. He was an Israelite. She was from Jericho. God welcomed them in. God never intended it for it to be an exclusive club. God is saying, don't let these people say this. They shouldn't say this because, verse 4, for thus saith the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbath and choose the things that please me and take hold of the covenant, even unto them will I give in mine house and within my walls a place and a name better than of the sons and of the daughters. And I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. This is really important. There's a connection right here. Eunuchs. They'd had their livelihood, their lineage cut off. And God says, but I won't. When you keep the Sabbaths, there will be a posterity. There will be a lineage. There will be a testimony that follows and there will be a blessing. You will not feel like a dried up tree because I know that you love me with all your heart. In fact, because your love in spite of your challenges and tragedies in your life, because your love is so clean and crisp and pure, there will be an expectation in the world because of the witness of your life that you are my son and daughters. Verse six, and also the sons of the stranger that join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord 
to be his servants, everyone that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant, even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. And their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called an house of prayer for how many? All people. All. All people. All people who love the name of the Lord, whose hearts are fully surrendered to him, whose sacrifices are acceptable because they come with a willing heart. This talks about how, number one, we should come. We should come. We should come because we love him. We should come because our hearts are overwhelmed with the blessings that he has given to us. This is how we should approach the worship experience. And it shouldn't be exclusive. We shouldn't say, well, you can come, but you can't come. And and no, 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 no. This is only for... There's no walls or boundaries in worshiping God. All people are welcome to worship the Lord. The condition of their heart is the only condition, and we can't read that. He can, though. And he promises a blessing on all those who come. And notice, it's wherever they come. Wherever they come. Twice now it's mentioned that the blessing shall fall upon those who don't pollute the Sabbath. What does it mean to pollute? Pollute. To profane what? Contaminate. Ooh, I like that one. Contaminate. All right. If you have some water and it's polluted water, should you drink it? Oh, come on. Just a little bit of pollution, right? On the farm, we had drinking troughs for cows. Either they had a big bin, you know, like a 50-gallon container, you know, with water that would continually fill, or they had these little stations and they could just push into it and then water would come in and they would drink. It's really good water. But after watching the cows drink out of it, I'm not really interested in drinking after them. No, thank you. It's a little bit gross. We understand what it means to have something contaminated, something polluted. We understand that a little bit of leaven leaveneth the whole lump. When you find that your loaf of bread has some mold on it, do you just cut the mold out and throw it away? Let me stop. Should you just cut out the mold and throw the mold away and eat the rest of the loaf? Generally speaking, the mold you see is the mold that has already come to a head, but it's already filled with mold, and that's a good way to get yourself sick. So if you find a spot of mold on your bread, it should all be thrown away. So for those of you who didn't know that already, now you know the mold that you see are the spores that have already come to fruition. They've already grown beyond the capability of a microscope so that your eyes can physically see them. What you don't see is what your eyes cannot see and that it is already infused throughout the bread. And so just know when you see it, toss it out because it can get you sick, really sick. And don't cry to me about it being penicillin. It's, no, it can get you sick. It can get you sick. We know when something goes spoiled. We know when something is not right. 
we know when we pick up some water and it's brackish that it's probably not healthy for drinking. We know that if the herd of cattle just walked through the stream, we want to go farther upstream to try and get some clean water and we should still have a filter. And yet when it comes to the Sabbath, sometimes we don't understand what causes the Sabbath to be polluted, contaminated. I think if we stop for just a moment, we can probably think of some things that would. Just from the commandment alone, we're supposed to set aside our work. So could work pollute the Sabbath? Yes. So that which we could save for another day should be. Can music pollute the Sabbath? Oh, let's get personal. Can rage pollute the Sabbath? So our hearts are ill at ease, frustrated maybe with someone or something. That can pollute the Sabbath, right? This ought to be something we actively think about, that we could by our very, without words, but by our actions, even pollute the Sabbath for someone else, let alone for ourselves, right? I think most of this, there's no list that says, you know, these 10 things will pollute the Sabbath. A lot of it is about our relationship, the condition of our heart, and more importantly, the intentional mind. I want to be intentional about making sure that what I'm doing does not pollute the Sabbath. My understanding of Sabbath, the rest of the Sabbath, the Sabbath for other people, the worship experience, I want to be intentional about making sure that I am not polluting the Sabbath in some way, shape, or form. Be conscientious. He says that the last part, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Not argument or debate, a house of prayer. Interestingly enough, prayer done right focuses external. Praying for someone instead of gossiping about them or fighting with them. Praying for ourselves instead of allowing ourselves to shine through so clearly. Prayer oftentimes changes the nature of the environment that we're in. So practically, how do we see this happening? Psalm 95, verse 6. Psalms 95, verse 6. Some of the things that we do to help focus our minds and our hearts to worship, to help keep the Sabbath holy. Psalms 95, verse 6. This whole chapter is about praise and worship, how we can come before God to praise and worship him. Psalms 95, verse 6. It says, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Here's one of the reasons why we do that. Why would we kneel? Oh, here's another one. Why will we close our eyes? Reverence? Does God think I'm more reverent if my eyes are closed? It's not wrong. I'm just trying to, let's get to the bottom of this. Why do we close our eyes and kneel? Okay. Limits the distractions. Do you notice that in our day and age today, we are more distracted by visual cues than ever before in history? Most of it's to do with technology. 
you'll find people that are technology-driven are very visually driven. 100, 200, 300 years ago, they didn't have those types of distractions. There's no command that says you have to pray with your eyes closed. There's no command that says you have to always bow down. But there are recommendations that help us because it's helpful to humble our hearts and bowing is a matter of humbling our hearts. Closing our eyes kind of limits the distractions. I tell you, I get distracted easily. In the morning, one of the things I do is I don't open up or unlock my computer before I've had my worship because that gets, let me tell you, I try not to have worship on my computer because I know that gets distracted. If I'm on my phone, Ellen White stuff, I try not to even notice when my messages are coming in because I got to keep my mind focused. What? Airplane mode. Yes, airplane mode. The idea being is what do we need to do to keep our heart and mind focused? Whatever blinders we need to put on so that we're looking straight ahead. We don't want to miss the rich experience that he has to offer. Leviticus chapter 19, Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 30. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 30. It says, ye shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Interestingly enough, this text, the word and is a word that is linking, not in addition. In the Hebrew, this is a you shall keep my Sabbaths. And an example of keeping those Sabbaths is to reverence the sanctuary. So part of keeping the Sabbath holy is being reverent in his presence. Now, we already talked about Moses in the burning bush. It was appropriate for Moses to take off his sandals. In our sanctuary, there is appropriate behavior. We don't play tag in the sanctuary. That doesn't show reverence to the house of God. It would be helpful if we had even a deeper discussion about this, a deeper discussion about what it means to reverence God's sanctuary in order to help keep the Sabbath holy. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20. Back towards the end of the Old Testament, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20. One of the introit songs that we play in the morning Actually, it's from this text. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20. And it says, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. We don't sing the words of it, but she was playing it. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence. So there is a time to be silent in God's presence. You ought to try that sometimes in the morning. When you're spending time with God, a little silent time might be helpful. As you're thinking about the texts you're reading, as you're spending some time in prayer, it's not wrong to just go silent for a little bit and listen. What is the Holy Spirit speaking to your conscience? A house of prayer. That's what we were talking about. It means it's not a cafeteria and it's not a playground. I've seen some crazy things. I've mentioned them before. One of the churches I showed up to, they were serving biscuits and gravy for everyone out there. 
they had their coffee and their donuts and their biscuits and gravy, and it was just a chaos out there. And then people were taking plates into the sanctuary. They had chairs very similar to ours here, and they were taking their plates in there, and they were just eating away while the service was going on. When they were done, they just left all their plates and stuff underneath the chairs. And you could see after the service, people were coming with trash bags as they were picking that all up. I just didn't feel like they were really there for worshiping God. And it's not like they were homeless and you were feeding them. I mean, these people were driving up in very nice cars. I'm sure they had the ability to make breakfast on their own. It just didn't create a worshipful experience. And I'm not sure that they realized they'd missed anything, but I did. Music. Music can ruin a worship experience too. Destroy the reverence. We talked about that when we did one of the first sermon parts I talked about, how music and worship is connected. Music is worship, period. It's just what or who you're worshiping. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1. Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 1. Back to that experience with Solomon and the dedication experience. Second Chronicles chapter 7, starting in verse 1. It says, Now when Solomon had made an end of praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house, and the priests could not enter because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. And when the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. How many of us would fall prostrate if we saw the physical presence of God's interaction with us here in the sanctuary? I'm not sure there would be a breath between the moment we recognized it and the moment we would want to fall prostrate in his presence. Do we think about the fact that we're coming to worship him? The fact that we're coming into the presence of the God of the universe? The priests couldn't minister. The musicians could not even play. They had to leave. God wants to bless us with his presence, with the blessings that he's prepared. He wants to be a a powerful experience that draws the world. Last text, Psalm 84. Psalm 84, verse 4. Psalm 84 and verse 4. says, blessed are they that dwell in thy house. They will be still praising thee. Now back up just a bit. Go to verse 2. My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Yea, the sparrow hath found a house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young, even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are they that dwell in thy house. They will still be praising thee. God has a blessing prepared for his people. His goal is that we would enter into that blessing. And it's possible that we might come and miss it completely. Maybe our minds are so caught up in something that we didn't even stop to think about that we were in the presence of God. Maybe we, were, we didn't bring the stuff from the weekend. Maybe we just, when we got there, something happened and our mind was so caught up in it that we missed the blessing that God had. God has set aside a time 
And he wants us to set aside a place that we can worship him. It doesn't have to always be brick and mortar. It can be something or somewhere else. The idea being, though, that we would come together to fellowship with one another with the purpose of praising God and in the process receive the blessing that he has provided. This is one way to keep the Sabbath holy. Not to contaminate it, but to set it aside, to make it special, to make sure that we do not miss out on the blessing that he's provided. Part of that Sabbath is recognizing his presence. Part of it is treating him the day and the place of worship with respect. Part of it is learning to ask for his presence to dwell with us in this place. This is keeping the Sabbath holy. Interestingly enough, in all of those, they don't happen unless we're intentional about it. It's not going to happen accidentally. We won't accidentally keep the Sabbath holy. We might accidentally profane it, pollute it, contaminate it. But we will not accidentally keep the Sabbath holy. It will be because it's become intentional in our hearts and in our minds and in our practices. So today, Be intentional about connecting with the creator to keep the Sabbath holy. Don't let the world creep in and pollute it. Don't let the things around you pollute the Sabbath and pollute the blessing that he would have for us to experience. Let him pour out the blessing he has prepared on this Sabbath day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are amazing. You knew what we needed long before we even knew to ask for it. And the rest that you provide is just what we need. So Lord, let us receive the blessing. Let us not contaminate it in any way. May we keep the Sabbath holy all our days. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to David Austin, pastor of the Manistique, McMillan Northwoods, and Sault Ste. Marie Seventh-day Adventist Churches. If you enjoyed his sermon, why not visit one of his churches? The Manistique Seventh-day Adventist Church is located at 809 North Duck Inn Road in Manistique, Michigan, and their church service begins at 9.30 a.m. The McMillan Northwood Seventh-day Adventist Church is located at 5219 County Road, 413 McMillan, Michigan. And their church service begins at 12.15 p.m. And the Sault Ste. Marie Seventh-day Adventist Church is located at 501 West Easterday Avenue in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. And their church service begins at 9.30 a.m. This has been a Strong Tower Radio production.